0: Welcome to the 66th episode of the unofficial 75 Greatest Marvels Countdown podcast. It's an unofficial podcast discussing and examining the 75 Greatest Marvel stories as chosen by Marvel readers and published by Marvel Comics itself. The Countdown continues every Wednesday from last December until June 1st, 2016. Podcast is released through Bureau 42. I'm your regular host, Blaine Dowler. and joining me today is Professor Allen.
1: Hey Blaine, good to see you. Glad to be here.
0: Glad to have you on here. So Professor Allen is one of the guests who's one of the more experienced podcasters we have with us. Why don't you tell listeners what you've got out there and where they can find you?
1: Which says more about the rest of your podcasters than it does about me. But back in the summer of 2013, uh, my 20-something daughter and I started the Relatively Geeky Podcast Network. I had been at that point a co-host for a little while on the Book Guy show, hosted in Canada, by the way, Blaine. And uh, anyway, Emily wanted to do a podcast covering D.C. Bronze Age books. That's sort of a change point for the maturity of comics in terms of storytelling and socially relevant topics. I had been kicking around an idea in the back of my head about doing a solo show, and her interest really drove us uh, to do this, this work together. So we do a joint show as well and occasional specials. Everything that we do is under the same website and iTunes feed. At relatively geeky podcasts.
0: All right, so we'll drop in a promo for one of those shows, and then come back with technical details about today's topic: Thor, number three hundred and sixty-two. You like cheap
1: comic books, right? Well, I'm Professor Allen, and I talk about cheap comic books on the Quarterbin Podcast. In every episode, I'll dissect a single comic from my collection, as long as I paid no more than twenty-five cents for the issue. Forget about four-dollar new comics that you can read in four minutes, or crossover events that can cost a hundred bucks to collect. Join me in the quarter bin, where even bad comics are a bargain, and good ones are a steal. The Quarter Bin podcast is part of the Relatively Geeky podcast network. Visit us at RelativelyGeekyPodcast.blogspot.com or search Relatively Geeky or Quarterbin Podcast and iTunes. I guarantee it'll be worth every
0: penny. So today we're discussing Thor issue 362, and this is the original run of Thor that grew out of Journey into Mystery. So this story is cover dated December 1985. This particular issue was released on September 17th, 1985, although it is part of the Walt Simonson run, so it is part of a much larger story. The next smallest chunk is probably Thor 360 to 362. It was a bit of a three-parter. But even then, this era of Thor was serialized enough that it really is one continuous read in a lot of ways. It was written, penciled, and inked by Walt Simonson, colored by Christy Scheel under her pseudonym Max Scheel. Yeah, this sexism in the comics industry is not a recent thing. Lettered by John Workman Jr., edited by Ralph Macchio, or Macchio, I'm not sure how he pronounces it. He pronounces it differently than the Karate Kid, and I don't remember which is which. And it was released with Jim Shooter as editor in chief, and scored the sixty-six spot in the seventy-five greatest Marvel stories countdown.
1: Well, like uh, like Blaine said, uh, this really is a much longer uh, storyline, and pulling out three sixty-two without a little context, I thought was unwise. So I've got a brief synopsis of three sixty 360 and three sixty-one, just again to set the st- set the stage to lead us into 362. So in 360 and 361, the Asgardians have returned to Asgard to find it in ruins, and that's not the worst news. Malekith has trapped innocent souls in Hell, and Hela won't release them. So Thor, of course, leads an army to free them, along with the mortal heroes chosen by the Valkyries. These are led by Harakene. Harakene shows Thor some guns that he picked up from the mortal soldiers a few issues before, believe they're Chekhov-brand guns, not totally sure of that. Thor then goes off to pry information from Angerboda, and forced by the ruins of, of Odin, she tells Thor the path through hell. Sif has been unable to forgive Thor for striking her while he was under a spell a few issues back, but somehow that has never become part of his narrative, annoying Hank Pym to no end. Scourge, the executioner, asks Thor that he be allowed to join the expedition as well. Thor tells him, I think perhaps we share the same need. The questing party arrives at the gates of hell. They're confronted by Garm, the blood-stained wolf that prevents those leaving hell. He does not prevent people entering. So Thor and his buddies pass. Their first challenge is the appearance of the group's dead loved ones, who attempt to lure the group away from their mission. Balder meets Nana's former love who killed herself in order to free him from a vow to marry Carnilla in a typical Asgardian soap opera episode. Uh, Thor and the Executioner are both confronted with Sif and the Enchantress, respectively, neither of whom are in fact dead, which is a little confusing. So some of the men are lured away, but Thor and Balder recognize the trap. Hela manifests, and Thor challenges her to, yes, I'm not making this up, an Asgardian wrestling match. Now, Hela's touch means aging and death, so Thor dons the gauntlet and makes a mask out of his cape, which is a good move. During the match, Hela gets Thor once with her Hand of Glory attack, damaging Thor's face badly. Hela demands that Thor yield and become her slave, but the Thunder God rallies, crying that it was the slave of another that had hurt Sif, thus motivated. He pulls off Hela's cloak, which causes half of her body to age and rot. Threatening to permanently destroy the cloak, Hela yields. However, Thor's face remains destroyed, quote-unquote, and Hela is scheming to prevent the Asgardians from leaving her realm with the souls they came to rescue. That brings us to 362. Now, Blaine, you just said all you'd read was 362. Does that help? Give some context. Because 362 is mostly a battle issue.
0: It is. One of the things I noticed reading 362, which I read because I'm I'm trying to simulate reading it just off the list Marvel published. So for cases like this where it is part of a bigger story, I'm probably going to be just reading what actually makes that list. This is an era where Jim Shooter was editor-in-chief, and one of his mandates is that every issue can be someone's first issue. So they do have enough exposition to explain some of what's going on. They say, how is your face doing after your battle with Hela and the damage from her hand of glory? They explain some things. It would have been nice had they dropped in that these were souls of the innocent sooner. Cause as far as I could tell, this opens up with Thor and Balder leading an army. And it's the last page where you find out this, you know, all these people behind them, they're not soldiers in an army. That's why they've been sitting out the whole time. They are innocent souls who have been separated from their bodies and need to be returned to Midgard. It's literally the last page where that piece of exposition drops. Gotcha.
1: See, I cheated and read all three. So (laughs) to give myself the context,
0: Yeah, which is the way I'm going to recommend that our listeners do it. (laughs) It's not terrible. That is really the one piece that's missing, but they do provide a lot more. And a lot of the moments here that I, I suspect there's a couple of specific moments that are the reason that this made it onto that 75 greatest Marvel stories list. They would, I believe, have a lot more emotional resonance had you read the two issues prior to it, especially based on the synopsis you just gave. Okay. Scourge in particular has a moment right. that it, it was neat reading it here, but it comes out of the blue. Right. Whereas I suspect groundwork has been laid should you read it in the proper sequence. Right.
1: And that does bring us to 362. And uh, we start with uh, Naglfar, the Ship of the Dead, readying to sail. The ship built from the fingernails of the dead, which is actually pretty cool, is how Helen tends to ride to Asgard with an army of the dead to destroy the gods. Uh, She's promised Scourge a place of honor beside her during the coming battle. Enraged at being manipulated, Scourge destroys the ship with his blood axe, which is also a cool name. So Ragnarok has been delayed. Thor's party successfully retrieves the lost souls from hell, and it's time for the difficult journey home. As they race for the Hellgate, the demons rise up to stop them. The uh, Einarhar, the souls, use the M16s given to them a few issues ago. To drive the demons back, as that works, I guess. The foundations of the underworld shudder as Thor and the Einarhar collide with numberless hordes of Hela, and the impact sends tremors to the farthest corners of the realm. Thor's force makes their way for the bridge, which I'm not going to try to pronounce. Thor is suffering terribly due to the wounds he received in the last few issues, and as a bit of emotional mess over the supposed death of Odin and his recent problems with Sif. But, being a hero, he swears to hold the demon horde at bay as long as he can, keeping the bridge open as long as he can, allowing the souls of the mortals to reach freedom. Then Thor is totally sucker-punched by Scourge the Executioner and knocked cold. Amidst cries of him being a traitor, Scourge begs Balder to hear him speak, hoping to enact vengeance and to do what is right in the end he will stay behind. He elicits from Baldur a promise that Thor and he will drink to the memory of Scourge. Baldur consents to the Executioner's wish, and he and the rest of the mortal mortal souls all depart hell, taking the unconscious Thor with them. And then we have Scourge's dramatic last stand. He remains alone at the bridge, armed with the rest of the Earth weapons and lots and lots and lots of ammo. Though the armies of Hell march upon the bridge, none cross, where Scourge stood. As he mows down demon after demon, his courageous stand even impresses Hella herself, who would later tell tales of him. He stood alone at the bridge, and that answer is enough. Eventually, although it took a while, eventually he was overrun and killed by Hella's forces. But he kept his word, and not one demon set foot upon the bridge. Bitter upon hearing the news, Thor defeats the Hellhound Garm easily, and the way is clear. The Asgardians are out of hell. Thor opens a portal to Midgard so that he can return the lost souls. The end.
0: So as Elon said earlier, a lot of this issue is fighting.
1: (laughs) Awesome fighting for the most part. It is.
0: In terms of the impact this has had on the Marvel Universe as a whole, this, to the best of my knowledge, is the point where... The Executioner developed more than just the 1960s villain, I'm going to do evil things because I'm the bad guy the story needs and not the bad guy the story deserves kind of (laughs) idea. Yeah,
1: he was pretty much nothing but sort of the Enchantress's lackey or lapdog or whatever you want to call it back in the sort of masters of evil days.
0: Yeah, he was uh, a guy with a cool sounding name who didn't actually execute anybody thanks to the Comics Code Authority.
1: He he wasn't much of a scourge, so yes, <laughs> yeah. But I think I think Simonson did a lot to give him a lot of uh, characterization, a lot of depth, and then does give him a pretty great grand finale here.
0: He does, and that's one thing I will yeah. give Simonson. Thor as a concept has never greatly appealed to me. I like mm-hmm. my characters with more weaknesses and more vulnerabilities than you're going right. to get from your average sure. god. <laughs> and I kept hearing wonderful things about Walt Simonson's Thor. I was trying to get caught up on the Marvel Universe because I hadn't been reading in a while. And even when I read in junior high and high school, it was almost exclusively X-Men and G.I. Joe. So the Visionaries line of trade paperbacks seemed to me to be a good way to get to know the broader reaches. Because that's sort of the handpicked, here's an awesome story with this character right. kind of format. So I, collect, I got all the Walt Simonson Thor Visionaries. So far, I've only actually read the first two volumes in entirety of the five that were published. You can also get it as one of the larger omnibus editions. Yeah, many a vagrant would fall to that one. (laughs) But it was interesting because I I think Fox can learn a lot from the way Walt Simonson handled Thor when they're doing their Fantastic Four movies. It seems like Fox is looking at the elements that make the Fantastic Four literally fantastic. Mm -hmm. And they're trying to strip them away and almost apologize for their existence and trying to make them more grounded and more grounded and more grounded. And part of the reason I was hesitant to get into Thor is because of all these trappings of you know, the godliness sure. and he wasn't sure. so much of a, a day-to-day hero. Whereas Walt Simonson's run has been very enjoyable for me, and he took the opposite approach. He said, No, these are the things that make Thor Thor. We don't need to right. apologize for that. We just need to embrace them and show people how awesome they can be.
1: Right. Yeah, I I, I I far enjoy Thor, the Asgardian stories, you know, like this one, a purely Asgardian story, than trying to make Thor work on Earth. Mm-hmm. I think the Avengers movies and and I think that the the Marvel Cinematic Universe has done an okay job but even there I think the highlights for Thor and Loki have been the have, have been the Asgard stuff the Asgard scenes that's that's really the parts of Thor that I that I prefer the sort of disconnected from from earth aspect of it and certainly losing the the Donald Blake alter ego those sort of superhero trappings I think was a a good move for the character.
0: Yeah, I did. Thor and Captain America were two movies that I enjoyed far more than I expected to because of the way I connect with the characters on the comic book page. And that's part of it is, again, they've just outright embraced it. And and they've found, I think, in Thor's case, plausible reasons for him to be on Earth. Mm -hmm, And Simonson's run on Thor has the same thing. When Thor is on Earth and acting as an Avenger and a typical superhero, he's got good motivation for it. Right. The rest of the time, he's got this life he's been living in Asgard for centuries before he became Donald Blake. He it's not gonna be the easiest thing to walk away from and ignore. Right. And Simonson recognized that and involves that. Like you said, this is this is very much steeped in Asgard. I strongly suspect that if you were reading this story as your first issue of Thor, but you were <laughs> very well versed in Norse mythology, right. it would make a tremendous amount of sense to you, aside from you know, probably the little choppings I had where that one piece of exposition came later than I would have preferred. Sure. Everything else is there in order. If you know the Norse mythology, you could read this and understand who everyone is, why they connect, what their relationships are, and go from there. With the possible exception of Scourge the Executioner, I don't right. believe he is part of the original Norse mythos.
1: My, uh, my favorite Thor story of all time is not in the countdown, but it's another Asgardian story. It's the Eye of Odin or a uh, Ring of the Nibelung arc from around 292 to 300 sort of the tail end of the Roy Thomas run. Yeah. And 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 anyone who's listened to my Quarterbin podcast has heard plenty of Richard Wagner as I use his music to score almost every episode of that show. And this is a 8 or 9 issue run where we're in essence being told through Thor and Odin The story of Siegfried and the Twilight of the Gods, uh, to me, that's a terrific achievement in comics. I can see why it might not resonate with everybody. But again, it is a thoroughly Norse, thoroughly Asgardian story.
0: So what was your first exposure to Thor 362 in particular?
1: I had a pretty good run of Thor, probably six or seven or eight years worth of collecting from the late 70s into the Simonson run and then popped out. Uh, over the years. it's po- I I don't know that I read this story during that run, because when I was looking at the covers in the back of the trade, I know for a fact I read 357 and 358, because I recognized Beta Ray Bill on the covers. It's possible I stopped right then, a few issues before I would have gotten to these ones. So it's possible I picked them up in my return to comics about a decade ago. Like, like you were saying, I'd heard so many good things about the Walt Simonson run that it went back and through trades uh, collected. So it's possible that I read this 362 uh, issue uh, eight or nine years ago for the first time.
0: Okay. Yeah, and in my case, I read it for the first time prepping for this podcast.
1: To uh, – I don't know how much you want to pull back the curtain. That would be about 20 minutes ago. Well, at this point, that would be about an hour ago.
0: Yeah, it's uh, – <laughs> I wrapped up my first read and then – Call that one via Skype. So.
1: <laughs> so what were your first impressions, Blaine? Does it belong on a list of the 75 best stories of all time for Marvel?
0: It's, it does feel like a culmination, but I wouldn't have chosen this specifically. It is a good issue, but it doesn't stand alone. This would have been one of the ones where I might right. have voted for a 360 to 362 or right. just Simonson's Thor end of vote, right? Okay. Just take the whole bloody omnibus and stick it on there in one shot. It does feel a lot like the 1980s comics, particularly in the coloring. Yeah. I mean, Max or Christy Scheel, however you want to refer to her, she got a lot of work and she deserved it. One of the stylistic choices often made in the 80s as a combination of available technology and available time to get things done and finished is not doing all the individual colors on every costume. Mm -hmm. So if you've got smaller figures or distant figures – they would just be uniform colors. And a lot of times it would be shortcut in the background. You know, So all the innocent bystanders in the background, well, they're just blue head to toe. Right. We do get similar coloring to that. One of the things I will give Christy Shield a lot of credit for is that when she's picking these colors, she is picking vibrant colors and they are emotional colors, but she's doing it in larger mm-hmm. figures as well. So when Scourge is taking his stand, there's times where there's a unusually large panel, maybe only four or five to a page. There's one large panel, almost like a half page splash and scourges a quarter of that panel. And he's just yellowy orange from head to waist and surrounded by the red denizens of hell. So there's often just two or three colors. It does have the emotional impact that she's shooting for, but it also comes out as a little overly simplified. Some of that may just be tasted it developed as coloring technology improves. So you can almost red or yellow wash it but still allow for the individual colors of the individual pieces to come through or do like a a Frank Darmada with a lot of, you know, he does a lot of those gradients Mm -hmm. and and shines and things in his work.
1: Yeah. I think it's, 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 it's interesting just in, in, in in general on this book that, as you said, the Simonson run, one of the most well thought of, well-respected runs of any comic from this era or maybe any era. And so they you can see they needed at least one issue in the countdown to represent it, but we do have another one coming mm-hmm. up in about thirty episodes or so. There's another again, a single issue again, which is an, an, an interesting choice. There's another single issue story coming up from the Simons and Run. So I do wonder what the what the, the process was for landing, not just as you said in this arc, but on this particular issue. I guess the death of the executioner. And I mean it seems like on the list there are some firsts and origins and deaths and sort of events. So maybe that's sort of the key event that is getting referenced here.
0: I would think so. I mean, I think it's on the list, like the first Wolverine versus Hulk, right? Incredible Hulk 181 made the list. Right. Sure. Right. Not technically Wolverine's first appearance, right. but the first time you really knew anything about him except what he looked like and right. his name. And
1: quote unquote important issue.
0: Yeah. I'm one of the guys who argues that no Incredible Hulk 180 really is Wolverine's first (laughs) issue, simply because if the book had been canceled at that point, the character Wolverine would still be established to some degree. Mm, Okay. But I will also totally admit, at the end of 180, if it had been canceled, the next person to write Wolverine could have written an entirely different character (laughs) than the one we have, because the appearance and name are really all that was established
1: on uh, on uh, you, you mentioned the the coloring in particular I didn't want to talk just in general about the art there I, I I think a legitimate criticism of comic book reviews whether the online or especially in podcast form is that uh, art is often ignored just because it's hard to talk about especially in a medium like this but I did want to talk about Simonson's art uh, in this issue in particular because he's he's in essence, doing it all except for the coloring and the 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 job of drawing a comic, if you will, has so many different aspects from the panel design, the layout, the storytelling, the technical figure drawing, faces, etc. Different artists have different strengths and weaknesses. Of course, I think that one of Simonson's great strengths, and it serves him well on Thor in general in this in this issue, is one that a lot of comic artists don't do well. Maybe that's why he stands out and that's perspective perspective shots yeah. uh, there are a few shots sort of i mean classic shots of thor flying right at the reader which is a mm-hmm. classic pose also various armies running straight out at us from the panel and those shots are universally and uniformly terrific and i think that's a shot that's a concept that flying right out at you in in particular yeah that's difficult to do also it will uh, shout out, just the very first page of the boat
0: mm-hmm.
1: is, again, just very nicely drawn. It, it's 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 set at an angle, and it just looks the back of the boat compared to the front of the boat appear to be in the right perspective. And that's not yeah. an easy thing to
0: do. No, it was great, even if I did find the boat distracting. Yeah. I, I read that. <laughs> not just, just distracting in terms of the art, but after reading that bit, I spent the next four pages fighting the urge to go fill up a sinking clip fingernails to make sure they float. <laughs>
1: Save that for the physics show, Blaine. Save that for the other show. Yeah. In terms of the art also, for comic book, animals are notoriously, horses specifically, are notoriously difficult to draw, which is one of the reasons. I mean, maybe, it's, uh, maybe it's just an old wives' tale, but one of the reasons why uh, Western comics are hard to produce is because horses are hard to draw. There are a lot of horses in this book, and they're pretty good. Uh, Thor's carriage, various, you know, scourges firing right at us a couple of times uh, with his weapons. So again, perspective, scale, some of those figure drawings, Uh, uh, excellent, excellent work.
0: It is. And like you said with the scale, when you're going into a large chamber, you look at the page Mm -hmm. and feel like it's a large chamber because of that perspective work. Part of what makes that perspective work is he can draw tiny little figures Without omitting detail, so right. you can have a character that is, you know, six or seven millimeters tall, or say quarter of an inch for those in countries Thank that you. haven't adopted more sensible <laughs> units of measure. But you have you have the scale, and you you can still tell. Yes, that that tiny little figure is Thor, and that tiny little figure is Balder. Some of that is the outfits that sure. he has developed. So like the, the costumes that for these guys. You know, Balder has a significant headpiece, so you can just see the little sort of wings or quasi-horn style figures on them, and that tells you this is Balder. And the circles on Thor's front tell you that's Thor, and it stands out in the smaller figures. But those details are always there. Simonson may have been one of the earliest uh, artists I can think of, or I've been able to see in the industry, who was able to break away from a house style Hmm. and still maintain it. So you can look at these characters. I've seen some people who break away from the house style and you pick up, you know, a first issue of amazing Spider-Man that they're doing. And you, until I read the dialogue, I'm not sure which of these guys is Peter Parker. Right. Right. Most of the time, that's not an issue for the first few years. You know, we start with Steve Ditko, then we get John Romita Jr. Right. And a lot of people there were going, well, how did Romita draw How did Ditko draw And Or how did Ross Andrew draw And they're doing their version of Romita or their version of Andrew. And it, it It took a while for comic artists to be able to figure out how to break out of the house style and for comic publishers to recognize how to allow artists to break out of the house style and still draw it in such a way that you could pick up that issue and know exactly who this is. And that's a lot of what we have here. You can look at a page of Walt Simonson art, and he was one of the first artists where you didn't have to know much about art to recognize that's Walt Simonson. Right. Right. There's sometimes you can... If you give me a blow-up of a character's face early in my comic reading, I couldn't have told you if that was Peter Parker or that was John Romita Jr. (laughs) in their Spider-Man runs. I learned to distinguish them first because Ross Andrew had very different panel layouts Mm -hmm. than Romita Jr. did. And Simonson has distinctive layouts, but you don't need that. His figure work, he said he's – I think the first guy I could think of who walked that line where the characters are immediately recognizable and yet – distinctly walt simonson's version of them
1: yeah i've i've and i've talked about this over on 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 my shows and and with uh with with emily on on our show together that uh for both of us we are both story first when it comes to comics and not only are we story first we are almost story only to, to some extent and it's really only recently that i've really tried to pay more attention to art and especially I, – I think that – I actually think that criticism of online reviewers focusing only on story is, is actually pretty accurate. It was certainly accurate for me. So I do try to go out of my way to mention the art, but I find myself lacking the experience or lacking the vocabulary uh, to properly describe it sometimes. I think Simonson made it pretty easy here Yeah, in that there's some obvious things that he does really well, that and that helps.
0: Yeah, I'm largely in the same boat. I actually got a copy of The Art of Comic Book Inking specifically to learn enough about inking to comment on it and review reviews, sure, sure. Because I I'm again, there are some writers whose work I will buy because so and so is writing it and it doesn't matter who's on the art. Right. But I've never bought a comic because of the art regardless of the writer. Right.
1: I'm I'm I I'm, I'm in that same boat and I yeah. hear other comic book fans say the exact opposite and I don't get it. I mean, it's it, 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 it's 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 a man. I understand it's a matter of taste and and preference and experience, but that is I mean that I I say that just to say how far on the other end of the spectrum uh, that I am. I mean, to me, yeah. for the most part, art has to be somewhat almost extreme for me to notice it. I'm a big fan of Jack Kirby, partly because it's so different. I can recognize it. It is so out there. I yeah. can recognize it. So so there and, and and there are only a few that in that to my. Inexperienced eye you know, stand out from the crowd.
0: Yeah, and I'd agree. There's limited. I mean, for context, I got every number one of the new Fifty Two when they launched in September right. two thousand eleven. Right. The first issue of Batwoman is the only issue of Batwoman I bought. <laughs> and even reading it, any page would look great hanging on a wall. Right. I will right. say JH Williams' art is that good, and I walked away from the title and never looked back. Right. right. But there were other books where. Uh, the art was distasteful. I didn't care because, hey, <laughs> hey, look at how good this writing is.
1: Uh, again, I, th- I think sometimes when it comes to art, what I notice is difference. It's different. I thought Moratat and All-Star Western or Cliff Chang and Wonder Woman. They were different enough that I noticed it. <laughs> I mean, to me, it's almost it's, – it's usually the negative. If I notice art, that's usually a bad sign for the comic because if I notice it, it's because – Perspective is wonky, and animal looks like no animal I've ever seen, or there are only three faces among all the characters. You know those sort of basic standard comic yeah. book uh, cliches. That that if usually when I notice it, it's a bad thing. But those mm-hmm. were examples of me noticing it and it being a good thing.
0: Yeah, yeah. I'm again largely when I notice the art bef- in a book, I'm not about to review. It's because the art made the story difficult to read in some way.
1: Yeah, exactly. Whether that's the panel layout or, as you said, faces being either off-model or inconsistent or that sort of thing. Yeah. Those are the ones that sort of jump out to me as pulling me out of the story because the story is what I'm personally usually there for. Yeah. And and I was going to say, and maybe that's one of the strengths of a Simonson or another one of my favorite creators, Mike Grell, is those times when... You have one person in charge of all of that. In this case, written and drawn by Simons. And maybe that's one of the strengths is that I think sometimes there's a, you can see a, maybe a disconnect between the writer and the artist. Either the writer not knowing what the artist's strengths and weaknesses are or the, the artist not quite understanding what the script was supposed to be. Or if it's the Marvel method, what the outline was supposed to be, you know, that, that miscommunication or disconnect. And obviously here or in some independent comics, again, or a few cases in mainstream comics where all of that work is being done by one person, you certainly have a single vision, which is usually helpful for a, a, a piece of art.
0: It does. It does. It just illuminates the possibility of communication issues when there's no communication necessary. <laughs> classic example of this, I think it was actually a colorist communication issue, is DC's Executioner. It was a, oh, okay. it was a one issue story that I think was actually a story about a, a young Bruce Wayne or alternate universe Bruce Wayne. I forget exactly what it was. I've got it in the greatest superboy team up stories ever told trade. Okay. <laughs> and one of the characters is adopted the persona of the executioner standing in front of a mirror. I believe it was a young Bruce Wayne saying, you know that this outfit is black. Black is night. Black is the the night when my parents got killed. And just talking about how black this outfit is, and it's been colored blue and purple.
1: <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah. It, it was a major disconnect.
1: Well, what was the there was um someone posted this on Facebook maybe a year or so ago as a uh, proof of a uh, of an argument that they had had for years. They pulled up you know some uh, reference guide on comic books. I can't remember if it was. At an amusement park or something, it may have been so- something like that. And it describes Superman's hair as black and blue. Mm-hmm. You know, someone not sort of not understanding the shading <laughs> components, you know, where dark darks tend to be, you know, shaded with that blue. It actually said that the hair was black and blue. That's, that, that's a miscommunication of the medium or a misunderstanding of the medium.
0: Big time. Yeah. Walt Simonson is one of the ones who understands the medium. That's for sure. Yeah. Definitely. Definitely. One of the things I do like about stories, and I think one of the aspects that will often get things on not just a great list, but the greatest lists, is that the story goes beyond what you get just in that surface layer. Mm -hmm. Right. So it's the the deeper meanings, like the social commentary that you see in the Star Treks and and areas like that. A lot of what you'd see in episodes of The Twilight Zone written by Rod Serling himself or X-Files by Chris Carter, there's usually something coming through. And I think that's part of the reason Scourge's moment resonates is when he's standing there and explaining why he is the one that's going to make this stand and not Thor. He actually has a great quote. I'm going to see if I can find it exactly. Yes, it's about halfway through the issue. Thor has just agreed and announced that he's the one that's going to hold the bridge and gets cold cocked from the executioner from behind, knocks him out, and he's saying, and executioner saying, "You shall not hold." The hordes of hell at bay before the bridge, and everyone's saying, "Slay him with some trick." And you know, Balder's ready to take the weapon yeah. from Harokin. An execution just says, "Balder, hear me out. They made a fool of me, Balder. They laughed at me. Everyone laughs at Scourge. hella mordonna even the enchantress I love—they all laugh at me. Except you, Balder, is too kind to laugh at Scourge. But whenever they laugh, I hurt inside. Maybe I die a little. Now I think I am dead already, and my axe was destroyed." with Nogfar. So I will stay behind and the last laugh will be mine. You and Thor have a drink when you are next in Asgard. And laugh Scourge's last laugh together. I will hold the bridge. Wow. And that that speech adds so much commentary. Those of you who have been listening to a lot of my podcasts may know my day job is as a teacher. And one of the things that a lot of schools have been dealing with in the last years is trying to stop bullying. Because mm-hmm. it is an issue. And I'm reading this, and it reads like Scourge became the villain he is because he was bullied. <laughs> and now the one man who has treated him with respect his entire life needs his help and he's going to get it, even if it means dying. Wow. And that just said a lot to me. It's like, no, you treat a human being with respect and you'll see that returned. And that's what Scourge has done here. He said, nope, Balder, you've been good to me. You've been the only person who's been good to me. I'm doing this for you. Get Thor out of here. Cause even recognizing Thor is not the bully. He's just opposing scourge because scourge needs to be opposed from thor's perspective right right so he is making that stand as much for himself as for others saying hey here's a point where now i will get the respect of everyone who's been down on me my entire life right and he's willing to give his life to finally get that respect well so I, i did like that moment where you could sit down and think hey you know be conscious of how you're treating other people right you might think it's funny to rail on someone, but hey, thirty years from now, you may have created this <laughs> executioner who will That's right. attack and attempt and fail to kill everyone except the woman he loves.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it's great that, as we said, you know, Simonson, you know, in in essence, rehabilitates the executioner from, I mean, as he said, not only is he being made fun of in story, there's a sense that I think Simonson understands metatextual sort of level, and I think that. That gets thrown around a bit too much sometimes, but mm-hmm. you know the, the executioner, as we had said, never lived up to his name. You know, he yeah. was a bit of a lackey, a bit of a lame villain, and was probably laughed at by <laughs> readers and by, and by others as well. So I I, I think Simonson, you know, doing this uh, rehabilitation on him uh, here as it in in essence is his final moment is a nice move on many
0: levels. It is. In the span of four panels, he has turned a bland villain into a character I am rooting for. Exactly. And want to see him mm-hmm. mow down his opponents by the dozen or by the hundred. <laughs> right. This is the point when he had that speech, I realized I wanted Scourge to make it out of here. Yeah. Yeah. But he can't. <laughs> he can't. And that's part of what resonates in the end is because he really... Sure. You know, he didn't turn and run when he realized the odds were against him. He stood right. his ground and legitimately gave his life for mm-hmm. the sake of the others. And I I suspect, based on that speech, had Balder not been one of the party, he just said, Okay, Thor, have fun. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, yep. See you when it's yeah, my it's, turn in a long time from now.
1: I thought that uh, that's an interesting insight. You know? I, hadn't, I, I hadn't thought about it the way that you would, uh, the, the way that you would put it.
0: I mean, we touched on this earlier, but we do like to start to wrap it up by talking about why we think this is at the point of the tournament that it's in. Yeah. And I I believe it is those – let me see here. We've got one, two, three, four, five pages of Scourge. Right. And I I firmly believe it's those five pages that caused the voters, because this was voted – Marvel had an open email address. You could free-form text, email any submission. I suspect it's those five pages covering the executioner's last stand that caused readers to vote not just for Simonson's Thor right. but for this specific piece of Simonson's Thor
1: right, yeah, I can see that I mean, as you i mean we as as we've we've talked about it, how emotionally resonant uh, that it is and whether it's that combination of people reading it thirty odd years ago and it's still resonating or in my case reading it first maybe about ten years ago or uh you an hour ago <clears throat> no uh I mean but i think i i i think through the you know via the uh via the Simonson visionaries paper uh, the 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 collections and those sorts of i think people are have been reading this in various stages for those thirty years, so you can i think it's probably built up some fandom the Simonson run in general and this uh this particular piece of it in 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 particular i mean i I can see that. I mean, I, I can see that scene, that speech being memorable
0: to people, mm-hmm. especially comic readers at the time. If you are, if you are a child who's being subjected to bullying, when you read that speech for the mm-hmm. first time,
1: yeah, that that's going to stick. That's going to stick. Interesting.
0: Yeah, yeah, I think it's going to have an impression. So,
1: and I think just, I mean, I think yeah, you and I will will have opportunities to talk about this in in later episodes. I do think that there are some of these on the list that if they do this list again in five or 10 years might be further down the list, which is just, as I think some more recent stories got voted up because they're recent stories. Um, if, if that makes sense, but I think this is yeah. one that would stick somewhere in that 50 to 75, you know, in the context that seems about right. Yeah. Not, not the greatest Thor story of all time, but I, I could see it being in the conversation, put it that way, you know, for those moments, for those moments that we've talked about.
0: Yeah, and I think there are. I think there's stories in the top fifteen that wouldn't necessarily make the list five or ten years from now. Yeah, exactly. I I think part of the list is influenced, I suspect, by people who have started reading comics because they got into it through the movies.
1: That's right. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I I, I can see that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Some of the biggest stories since the Iron Man movie came out, (laughs) right, are on the list, and so that's something I've heard fans online complaining about why some of the stories are on the list at all, especially some of those recent ones, I will take it as a sign that the readership of comics is growing. And I'm happy about that because that's a, the net, industry needs that's a
1: net positive. That's a net positive.
0: Yeah. Let these people vote for it now. And then five years from now, when they dug through the back issues, of the masterworks and go, Oh my God, this was awesome. And then vote for the, you know, your daredevil born agains, which the Marvel voters put it at number four. I'd put it at number one. <laughs> right.
1: <laughs> the, uh, as was we said, I mean, you know, to, to call this Marvel's 75 years is a bit of a stretch, uh, in terms of, of, um, determining the beginning of the Marvel universe. And I think as they say if they do this in 2021, you know, the 60th anniversary of the real start of the Marvel universe, you know, and do the top 60 of 60 or whatever if the, the equivalent would be in a few years that, yeah. as we said, some, some would, would, drop down the list, uh, further down the list, you know, but I, I would hope that something like this, you know, might have some staying power.
0: Yeah. So any final thoughts on Thor 362?
1: No, I think, I think, I, I, I think we said all, all that we could say.
0: Okay. Well, once again, thanks for joining us here this week, Alan, looking forward to having you back for later episodes.
1: Thank you. Glad to be here.
0: And uh, speaking of stories, that makes some people wonder why they made the list. <laughs> Join us again next week. When we sit down and discuss Spider-Man The Clone Saga, it is, of course, available in 175 different individual issues. It has also been collected in trade paperback form, and that's probably the easiest way to track it all down. Mm -hmm. So if you do it in the trade paperback form, there are five volumes of Amazing Spider-Man The Clone Saga, even though of those 175 issues, there's about 20 of them that are actually Amazing Spider-Man. (laughs) <laughs> and there are 6 volumes of Spider-Man the Complete Ben Reilly Epic. So,
1: now I don't know, you know, how long you, these episodes have been going, but just based on this one, I would expect your listeners to have to set aside 70-75 hours to cover those. Is that about what you're thinking?
0: <laughs> that's probably going to be the longest one because <laughs> it's it is 175 issues that is going to take time. So, Yeah, go out and raid libraries if you want to and set aside enough time to read 175 issues. (laughs) So join us again next week. It is the largest story in the set, and it is one of only three stories to break the 25-issue mark, So, followed by the one we will deal with in three weeks' time, which is the (laughs) New Mutants by Chris Claremont, if you want to track that one down. So, Alan, again, thanks for listening. Uh, Listeners, you are welcome and encouraged to rate the show on iTunes or Stitcher. You can leave feedback for us in the Facebook group or at bureau42.com. Although the bureau42.com is powered by WordPress, there's only a 22-day window to leave those comments. And thank you for listening.